Welcome to 900 Ackland Avenue. This is the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. What follows is the sermon from September 12th, 2021. Thank you and God bless. Good morning again. Welcome to Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. We begin... Well, I guess we already began. But our first reading this morning is Jeremiah. It's from Jeremiah chapter 29. And it'll be the first 14 verses. The prophet Jeremiah sent a letter to the exiles Nebuchadnezzar had carried off from Jerusalem to Babylon. It was addressed to the elders who were left among the exiles, to the priests, to the prophets, and to all the other people who were exiled in Babylon. He sent it after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the palace officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had been, that had been exiled from Jerusalem. He sent it with Elisa, son of Shephan, and Gamariah, son of Hilkiah. King Zedekiah of Judah had sent these men to Babylon, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And the letter said, The Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all those he sent into exile from Babylon, or to Babylon from Jerusalem, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find your wives and your sons, and allow your daughters to get married so that they they too can have sons and daughters. Grow in number and do not dwindle away. Work to see that the city where I sent you as exiles enjoys peace and prosperity. Pray to the Lord for it. For as it prospers, you will prosper. For the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says, Do not let the prophets among you, or those who claim to be able to predict the future by divination, deceive you. And do not pay any attention to the dreams that you are, in, that you are encouraging them to dream. They are prophesying lies to you and claiming my authority to do so. But I did not send them. I, the Lord, affirm it. For the Lord says, Only when the seventy years of Babylonian rule are over will I again take up consideration for you. Then I will fulfill my gracious promise to you and restore you to your homeland. For I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. When you call out to me and come to me in prayer, I will hear your prayers. When you seek me in prayer and worship, you will find me available to you. If you seek me with all your heart and soul, I will make myself available to you, says the Lord. Then I will reverse your plight and will regather you from all the nations and all the places where I have exiled you, says the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I exiled you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful morning, the opportunity we have to come together as your children and worship you. We pray that each person here will seek you with their hearts and their souls, with each thought that we have in this.
this hour and in the week to come. Father, we pray your blessings on us, and we pray that we can be your blessings to those around us. Thank you for your son Jesus, for his life and death, for his teaching and his sacrifice. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Psalm 137 in its entirety. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our hearts, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Let's pray. <laughs> Precious Jesus, Heavenly Father, it's been a hard weekend, I think. A lot of remembrance about things that are hard. And so many people, not just from this weekend, but from the past year and more, and even some people before that are angry. They feel betrayed, as the Israelites did, by friends, by family. They feel abandoned, they feel hurt, they feel afraid. And all these feelings, so many people are so angry. And they want comeuppance, they want revenge, they want to feel justified. <coughs> and I understand those feelings because I have felt them. But I ask that you be in our world, that you be in our churches and in our schools and on the streets, and that you move within hearts and you remind people that our future is in your hands and that we can trust you and your perfect will to take care of things. And I pray that you give us the strength and the courage and the humility to remember that we have been forgiven much. And because we have been forgiven much, we should remember to forgive others, which we can't do on our own. We only do it because you're in us, because nothing good is on our own. It's only from you, because you are good. You are what make, give you or who gives us the ability to make hard choices to, to be set apart. You make us holy, 
You make us righteous. We are not that on our own, only because of you. So I pray that you work miracles in us to see others with your eyes and your heart, to hear them with your ears and to hear the fear and to hear the hurt and to love them with your perfect love that takes away fear, which would take away anger. We ask you to give us the courage to trust you with our futures. We ask you to give us the strength to love our enemies, not just our neighbors. And that is a hard ask. But we can do it because you are here, you are alive, you have conquered the evil one, and you live in us and you give us strength, and we are so thankful for that. So please soothe our hurts, soothe our fears, soothe our angers. Help us to be a balm to those around us. And bring us all together in heaven with you. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. I want to thank uh, Jacobo Taco for preaching last week on a church's father, and I want to thank Anna for translating that. I know that was a special time, and uh, it's always good to be with family, church family, and biological family in the church. It's a really good time. It's an exciting Sunday because new classes are starting. I want to particularly make you aware that um, our second adult class that's going to be in the kitchen is a class on grief. We're going to be, uh, Marianne Copeland's teaching that, and it goes with the book Life After Loss. I know sometimes there's a little trepidation on, well, if I go to that class, if Justin walks into the grief class, are people going to be like, what's going on with Justin that he went to the grief class, okay? So um, let's be honest. We've all gone through a lot of loss the last year and a half. So um, we invite you to consider going to that class. I think you'll be better for it. Um, I went to that, it was a part of that class a couple years ago, it was, it was really, really special. We'll also have the adult class in the auditorium. Uh, and then we got small groups starting tonight, which more will be said at the conclusion, but a lot of good stuff happening. You can grab a bulletin, our reading will be from Luke chapter 10, sorry, Matthew chapter 10, and we'll read that together uh, in just a minute. <clears throat> so, um, we kind of have a, philosophy of preaching or philosophy of the pulpit here that's been um, kind of manifested for a long time and that is we try not to have a reactionary pulpit and so I don't just get up on Sunday morning read the newspaper and then just kind of like start going off on whatever happened the previous week the reason we do that is because we want to be a little more measured and sometimes it, it's so tempting to really get into whatever happened, but you can kind of be carried along by the trends of the day. And sometimes I can give like my hot take on something that two weeks later, I'm like, ew, I really didn't know all that was going on. And yet I said this and it's kind of cringeworthy now looking back on it. I know there's sometimes we're like, man, I wish we were talking more about what's going on. And we 
or not. And anyway, there's, it's hard figuring out what to do. But what I want to do the next three weeks is I want to talk about um, some significant things, kind of cultural trends in our nation the last five or seven years, and what it means for Christians, and uh, to talk about some things in kind of a measured way. So today, um, I'm going to talk about the theme of exile. You've noticed that from these readings. Um, And then next week, I'm going to talk about Christian nationalism. And then the sermon after that, we're going to talk about secular humanism. And I know those sound like fancy phrases. What's gotten into JP? You know, let me set it up like this. Um, Family, I'm not entirely sure where I fit anymore. Um, When I look at kind of cultural notions of what it means to be a Christian, there are times I fit that. And there are times that I don't. You know, look at cultural notions about what it means to be an American, and there are times that I feel like I fit that, and times that I don't. And then, a little closer to home, uh, cultural notions about what it means to be a Church of Christ preacher. (laughs) And there are times I fit, and there are times that I don't. Sometimes I'll be hanging out with people, and I feel so conservative compared to those I'm with. Other times I'm hanging out with people, and I feel so liberal compared to those that I'm with. And uh, I feel like life has become so often just kind of looking for this, uh, this none of above category, right? It reminds me of the story, 1 Samuel 16, 17, when um, it's the famous story of when David kills Goliath. But leading up to that, Saul wants to give David his armor. And his armor just doesn't fit. When I first moved into our current home, I had a drainage problem in my backyard, specifically on the south end of the property. Most all of you have been in my backyard. On the south end of the property, there's a drainage ditch and there's a pipe coming from the road. And what happens is debris, trash, kind of gets caught up on the road at the the entry to the drainage ditch. And then when we have a hard rain, which we have some hard rains these days, right? It comes gushing down the pipe and there's all kinds of trash, all kinds of debris. And if I don't clear that out, what happens is it forms all these dams and then suddenly I get all these rivets and all these these streams. And so I want my drainage ditch to flow in a straight line towards the creek because when it fills the creek, my backyard just comes alive, you know, and it leads to the flourishing of my family when the creek is alive. And uh, But if I wasn't maintaining it, my backyard was turning into a microcosm of like the Mississippi River Delta and there were all these different streams. And specifically, there were two main streams that each departed in the opposite way. And I really had to wrestle with what I was supposed to do with my drainage problem. And those two streams we're gonna kind of set up this morning. Our lives are pulled in many directions, and we often feel like we don't fit according to the available categories that are often mentioned in our world. But we find encouragement in the fact that Jesus did not fit in either. And that the early church did not fit in either. Confronting this will at times feel like a shock to the system, and it will likely offend us a little bit. It's like it's like jumping into the deep end of a pool without warming up to it. It's just going to feel like cold and disruptive when we do it, and it's going to feel a little offensive. But I want to tell you, what I'm about to read and say this morning offends me a little bit. 
I often offend myself when I preach. Yet Jesus didn't come to make us comfortable, but to show us the way. So our gospel reading this morning is Matthew chapter 10. If you'd like to stand for the reading, feel free to join with me in the bold sections if you would like. These are the words of Jesus. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Together, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. And truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Together, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others... I will disown before my Father in heaven. Thank you. This is God's word. You may be seated. In the passage, Jesus shows the extent to which he doesn't fit in this world. He reminds us that we will not fit either. Therefore, we must be on guard. We must be shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And what does that mean? We strive to be holy and pure, and yet it's a really thorny world out there. We've got to be wise. We've got to be wise. And no matter what, we must acknowledge Jesus in all things, and we must hold true and never disown God no matter what. Jesus doesn't use the word here, but this is the theme of exile, which our other readings are talk about exile this morning. And the theme of exile is to mean that you don't really fit. The theme of exile is to be a stranger in a strange land, far off from home. The biblical category for exile was when the Babylonians came and they destroyed Jerusalem. And they took young people like Daniel or Ezekiel Ezekiel back to Babylon. And they were like, how long are we going to be in Babylon? How do we sing, as Ryan uh, uh, said this morning from the scripture, How do we sing songs of Zion when we're not in Zion? We're back in Babylon. And they were being persecuted. And it was 
How do we maintain the identity of home when we're not home? Tim read the passage from Jeremiah that said, someday you're going to go back home, but until then, you build houses. You develop relationships. You seek the good of Babylon. Seek the good of Babylon. Okay, you've got to be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. You've got to maintain your identity, but yet you also have to seek the common good wherever you find yourselves. Even later, they go back home, but yet it doesn't completely feel like home. And you've probably been there. You've probably been back to a place that used to feel like home, but it doesn't feel like home anymore. And it's kind of this theme of exile. Scripture gives us an account of perpetual exile until Jesus returns. Christians take the mantra of exile in the early church when they're under the dominion of the Roman Empire. But they continue this as if to say, we will never be at completely home until Jesus returns. We, we love our neighbors, we love our enemies, we seek for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, but yet it frames our expectations that, that it will never completely be perfect until Jesus returns and will always, always be a little uncomfortable. We will always long for home a little bit. So according to the Bible, Christians today live in exile. And let me be clear about what that means and doesn't mean. Because it would be easy for people to look at me, proclaiming this morning, I'm in exile. And to look at me and say, JP, you're not in exile in America. Was every American president we've ever had looked exactly like you? Went to church fairly similar to yours? And then I say Christians today still have a lot of money and a lot of power in American society. You're not in exile. And that critique has some validity, right? So I don't mean to imply this morning that Christians in America are always powerless or always persecuted or anything like that. Instead, this is what I mean by exile. While professing Jesus may continue to be a majority position in America, following Jesus is a minority position. The true ways of Jesus have always been on the margins. Think of it this way. The Sermon on the Mount has never been the social center of any powerful nation. The Sermon on the Mount has never been the social center of any powerful nation. Moreover, in a fallen world, we continually have human suffering. Earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, pandemics, cancer, and things like that. And so that is what I mean by exile. And scripture teaches us we will continue to have these problems and struggles until Jesus returns. We should try to seek flourishing. We should try to seek the common good. We should try to pray that the kingdom of God will come on earth as is in heaven. While also being wise and having the expectation that that won't completely happen until the second coming. We live in an age of disruption caused by the internet globalism, changing societal norms and expectations, mass migration and political upheaval. And we must respond wisely to this disruption. Um, have you ever stopped and thought, why is everyone so angry? <laughs> everyone sure seems angry, right? Why is everyone so angry? Because of the disruption and because people are experiencing a loss of power. That may be a real loss of power, or that may be just a perceived loss of power. But either way, it feels real to them. 
and people all over the place feel enormously threatened. And when people feel threatened, they behave uh, in certain ways. And they feel a sense of, of dislocation as they're just trying to make sense of what's going on. So in this cultural moment, like my backyard, many paths diverge, but there are two main streams that I'd like to talk about. And I think of these as the two great temptations for the American Christian, the two great temptations for the American Christian. For those that um, maybe trend more on, on the proverbial right, the, I believe the greatest temptation is the temptation of Christian nationalism. This group desires a return to an ideal from the past, specifically a particular view of the nation's founding, or a view of a prior time in American history like the 1950s or something like that. They long for a return to this former value or framework. They want to conserve something from the past. And Christians in this camp feel under siege by American culture, specifically the centers of the media industry and the entertainment industry. They often view politics as a way to be protected from these changes. View politics as a way to be protected from those that are moving society in what they perceive to be a godless direction. In this way, theological conservatism may be a gateway into this camp. For politicians who sympathize with Christian nationalism often make promises about things that theological conservatives happen to value, specifically various notions of the family and religious liberty. What do we mean by Christian nationalism? I'll speak to this uh, in the entirety of the sermon next week. But for now, Christian nationalism is a cultural framework that idolizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. So, to be clear, if you want there to be more Christians in America, that doesn't make you a Christian nationalist. I want there to be more Christians in America. That doesn't make me a Christian nationalist. If you're like, I wish our country acted more like Jesus. I wish our country acted more like Jesus. That doesn't make me a Christian nationalist. Okay. Instead, Christian nationalism elevates the country over the Christian faith and uses the faith as a means to an end. So they use the symbols of Jesus and the Bible as, um, as like a lucky charm to try to bring about the type of America they want. But it always represents either a subtle or sometimes even extreme perversion of the teachings of the Bible. It's America first, it's Christianity second. And if Christianity is second, is it still Christianity, right? So let me be clear. Christian nationalism is hypocrisy, and Christian nationalism is a heresy. The second temptation, and this is probably the temptation felt more by those who kind of trend more in the proverbial left, and that's the temptation of secular humanism. They desire to move towards an idealized future, specifically a future free of the trappings of religion. They have a very different view of the nation's founding. And they want to progress to a new way of living, moving past societal taboos and equalities, which they believe are often grounded in religion. They feel under siege by the conservative religious population in America. 
And uh, we've seen more of this since, you know, this is the 20th anniversary this weekend of 9-11. Many people in response to 9-11, what happened in the aftermath, say things like, wouldn't the world be more peaceful without religion? Wouldn't the world be more peaceful without all these notions of God, right? And you've heard people say that. So Christians who sympathize with this posture often struggle with who to identify with. Because Christians who sympathize with this will say, so here are Christians who share my faith, but don't share my values. And then here are secular folks, non-Christian folks, that don't share my faith, but they share my values. And I feel like I'm constantly torn between spending time with people that share my faith and spending time with people that share my values. And they're like, there's this, your equilibrium is just totally thrown off if you, if you find yourself in this camp. And in this way, I'm sorry, um, so many tempted by this will sometimes make the slow trek over to secular humanism, which seeks to maintain values like love, kindness, and justice without the Christian beliefs of creation, atonement, and resurrection. Let's have love, justice, and peace. But let's try to do it without Christian doctrines like creation, atonement, and resurrection. And in this way, theological liberalism, with its suspicion of supernatural claims around Jesus in the Bible, including enormous doubts about the resurrection, can often be a type of gateway into secular humanism, just as theological conservatism can sometimes be a gateway into Christian nationalism. I'll preach on this in a few weeks, but for now let me say this. Secular humanism, to be clear, it is a non-religious framework. It seeks a completely physical framework, um, mainly uh, based on science, and I'm very pro-science, as you know. It's mainly based on science. And it believes humans flourish the most when liberated from the notion of God. Humans flourish the most when liberated from the, nation, the notions of God. So it is, it is a, den a denial of Jesus' word. So let me be clear. Secular humanism is apostasy. And it disowns Jesus. So if you're like me, you're like, I don't want to end up in either one of those groups. And yet, I, I find myself at times sympathizing with certain elements, but yet not wanting to end up there. And like, I know these people. These are not strangers. I hang out with these folks all the time. You do too. I do Thanksgiving with these people. Like, I work with these people. I wave at them at the grocery store all the time. Like, these are not unfamiliar camps. Um, so what do we do when we say there are these two prevailing options? I don't think it's really wise for me to drift in either way, but yet I feel surrounded by these options. What does it mean to say Christianity does not fit and will never fit in the, into the prevailing categories that we're given. We must take heart once again because as a Christian church, we have been here before. Because the early Christians had an even more complicated time trying to figure out where they fit. Now let me just venture into the early church for just a second. For those, it just happens to be your first time in Ackland. Sermons aren't normally quite like this. I know this is more lecture style. So kids, I promise, there will be delightful stories in the sermon soon. Okay. So um, in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, 
early Christian distinctiveness in the Roman world, Larry Hurtado lists five ways that the early Christians were distinct from Roman society. First, these are five ways they're distinct. First, they believed that the poor and the sick were worthy of help, not worthy of blame. So in a culture where if you were poor or sick, it said, it's your fault, the Christians came and said, we're with you and we're here for you. Second, the early Christians practiced a multi-ethnic way of life. So in a time period where most loyalty bonds were around family, clan, or ethnicity, the early Christians came and they had a very multi-ethnic, multi-family way of life where even your church was more important than your family and your church was made up of every tongue and tribe type of thing. Third, in a culture where infanticide was rampant and abortion was common, the early Christians refrained from those practices and were known for how they adopted children that had been abandoned and raised them as their own. Fourth, in a culture full of casual sex, prostitution, and adultery, Christians practiced lifelong com commitment, lifelong covenantal marriage between husband and wife, where both had mutual responsibilities to each other. And fifth, in a culture of state-sanctioned state, state violence and military power, they practiced nonviolence and rarely have ever joined the military. And their practices did not fit into Roman cultural norms. Romans did not know what to make of Christians, and it meant that Christians did not fit. But if you think of American culture, some might associate those first two distinctiveness as things that we would more associate with the political left in America. And some might associate the third and fourth thing I mentioned as something you'd more associate with the political right. But the fifth thing of nonviolence, that's not American. Let's be clear, that's not even American. The early Christians would not have made perfect Democrats, perfect Republicans, or perfect Americans. They would not have fit in here. So what should we do? How should we respond to our cultural moment in America? And this goes back to the passage from Jeremiah, which Tim read this morning. What do we do when we're in exile? We plant vineyards, we build houses, we do life. We seek the good of Babylon. We seek the good of America. Okay? So I'm always, always hesitate when I, when I do this. Christians aren't going to fit in sermon because I know some Christians that are absolute jerks and they go out and act like jerks and then they're like, America hates us. And I'm like, I kind of do too. Okay? <laughs> but like, my point is like, don't go out and be disagreeable. Like, we should be, we should be friendly with this world. We should seek the good of all. Okay, don't be a jerk. But yet, we should know you're never going to completely fit in with this world. And so that's what Jesus means as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. You try to be holy and pure, but you've got to be flexible and nimble. Don't expect the grocery store to completely endorse and agree with everything you believe in. Don't expect the school system to completely endorse and agree with everything you believe in. Don't expect the government to completely endorse and agree with it. Like, don't expect your neighbor to pat you on the back 100% of the time. And yet, you got to be flexible enough. Make wise partnerships where you can, where you say, we don't agree on this, but we agree on this. Let's work together on this. 
We don't agree on this, but we agree on this. Let's work together on this. We need to make wise partnerships while maintaining our identity. As I heard someone say once, we need to be people with soft edges and a firm center. We need to resist the temptation to fit into this world. As G.K. Chesterton once said, if you marry the spirit of your age, you will become a widow in the next. So church family, if we try to completely fit into the categories of 2021, we will find ourselves to be completely irrelevant in 10, 20, 50 years. In other words, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. If there is one prayer I have for the Ackland children and the Ackland teenagers, get used to the idea that you're never going to completely fit in. And it's not just okay, it's what Jesus calls you to. And you're a bunch of weird kids. I think you're doing great. No, I'm teasing. You know, you know how I meant that. Like, you're delightfully weird. And, like, we're so proud of you. And I mean that. And some teenagers I say to you, but, like, we're so proud of you because I think a lot of you are getting this in ways that I did not get. I mean, I had a conversation with a friend about 10 years ago, and I said, <laughs> you can be like, how pathetic. But um, I looked at him and I go, I thought things would be easier. I thought the culture would agree with us more. And he looked at me and said, I was raised to never expect to fit in. And when he said that, I was like, that's what I want for my children. And that's what I want for the children of this church. Saul, King Saul will keep trying to give you his armor. Do not put it on. It will never fit. So in conclusion, my drainage ditch was completely out of control. And water's flowing everywhere. And I wanted it to flow in a straight line to my creek. But to do that, I had to do a lot of work. It wasn't just a one-and-done type of thing. So here's what I did. I dug a new trench. And I dug the new trench deeper than all the other little ruts in my yard. Because water will go to the deepest place. So I had to dig deeper than I had dug before and deeper than that which was around me. And I had to go out every few weeks and do maintenance on my ditch and get the trash out. I had to spend time with it. I, didn't, I couldn't just expect it to go well. And then what I had to do is I had to put some rocks in the trench so that it would hold and take shape. And I think you can already see the application for us. If you don't have a deep faith, if you don't have a deep well, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be, um, I'm not trying to exaggerate or use hyperbole, but if you don't have a deep well, you may not make it. If you don't have a deep well, you may not make it in these times. We've got to dig deep, and we have to do maintenance. We have to continue. You might even see our gatherings. Is that what we're doing? We're cleaning out the ditch, and we're redigging the ditch, and we're putting rock down on the foundation of Jesus. I pray that we can resist the two great temptations of our age, Christian nationalism and secular humanism. I pray that we can have a foundation on Jesus. And we must do this regularly, perhaps even weekly, as we come around the table. For the table is the last, perhaps the only place where we completely fit in.
We would also take communion, so if you haven't grabbed your communion set in the back, you can go ahead and do that. the night before our Lord Jesus Christ was handed over to suffering and death he took bread and after he had blessed it he broke it gave it to his disciples and said take and eat this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me and after supper he took the cup and after he blessed it he gave it to them and said take and drink this all of you for this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray. Lord God, make this for us the body and blood of your Son, Jesus. Make this for us a living community that is able to make the world the world. And by hope, in a small series of exiles, we pray that we might be able to belong to your own exile in this world. Have mercy on us through the grace of Christ. from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for us as a community. And Lord, we pray that, that we as a community would look like the community you want us to be, that we would welcome strangers, that we would live life with people who make us feel uncomfortable sometimes. And God, we just pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to do what it takes to be your people. God, we know that you love us and you make all this possible, that you empower us with your spirit. And so God, I just pray that we um, would trust you and that we would um, do the hard things that it requires to, um, to be your people. And that, that makes us a little weird that we're okay with that. So God, just help us. We love you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning. Good to see everyone here today. Got a few faces I don't recognize. We're happy to have have you. Um, just a good to kind of get back to having a, a bigger crowd on Sunday morning. So. Good to have everyone here. A couple of birthdays this week. Lucy Spivey turned 17, and Roxy Sternberg turns 11. Oddly enough, I'm not invited to either one of those birthday parties. Uh, JP mentioned classes. I would encourage you to take a look at the bulletin. A couple of the classes are, are going to meet in different spaces. Uh, middle school, um, that's me and Amy's class. Uh, we're going to be moving, so just pace into that high school class. No, I take that back. Middle school classes are not moving. High schoolers, you will be back in the room at the cave, JPS. It's hard with the mask. Uh, small groups also begin today. Uh, if you're an adult, you probably know which group you're going to. We are also going to have, uh, for the first time, a senior huddle small group. Um, I email parents if I did not have your child's phone number, then there's a group text. But uh, high school, senior middle high school, if you're coming tonight, make sure you grab a book at the back. Um, actually, anyone who's in small group tonight, we're going to be using the Tish Harrison Warren book. If you don't have a copy, there are copies in the back of the auditorium. Also, I'll just say, remember, uh, remember your book. Remember to bring a chair. We're going to be meeting outside uh, in those small groups. Uh, remember that our Wednesday night gathering that we've been doing, uh, we'll continue to do as long as the weather is good. We're going to meet at the Conways this week, and we meet in Brown Bag, 5.30 to 7. But that, that has been a good time uh, this summer. We'd love to see you there if you haven't been able to come. And then finally, we just want to continue to remember our sick on the back of the bulletin. Um, my my stepmom, uh, Jane, is in recovery, doing well. We want to continue to remember Christy Wagner. Joyce, Marianne, as uh, they continue with treatment, as well as Nancy, Shelley, 
Trudy, Aiden, Brett, and Skyler. Keep those in your prayers. Any other announcements before we dismiss for class? No? All right. I believe there's coffee downstairs. You've been listening to 900 Ackland Avenue, the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. If you'd like more information about our community, our church website is http colon slash slash Thanks again for joining us. God bless.